Uh, I am Ricky. I'm honored to be the lead pastor here at Fort Carolina. And if you're a guest today, welcome to this church. And as you can see, we love having a good time. We love God and we love you. In fact, we just love helping people reach higher for the best life God has for them. And if we can help you in any way, we want to be available to you. At the end of our service, our guest services, volunteers will be at the doors and I'll be right here at the front. And so just let us know uh, if there's any questions you have or how we can help you. I want to talk to you a little bit today about why we're doing this Be Rich campaign where we're seeking to unleash generosity in our community, while we're trying to meet practical needs of people right here in our own community. And part of that is because it's who we are as a church. We don't just do this once a month or one month a year and then we're done being generous. We're a generous church all throughout the year, but we concentrate our efforts for our own community during the month of November to show how we can do so much more together than we can individually. And a part of religion means that we want to not only worship God in here on Sunday mornings, but we also want to go out there and make a difference during the week. Now, we all instinctively know whenever we see certain things that are wrong, we instinctively know something's not right with that. Uh, for example, if you see an overweight and out of shape physical trainer, you just know there's something, something wrong with that picture. Or if you know of a police officer who upholds the laws of our city by day and breaks them by night, there's something wrong with that, right? If you have a doctor who gets sick himself but refuses to take his own medicine, there's something wrong with that picture. None of us would go to an accountant who mismanages his personal finances and has to file for bankruptcy. There's just something wrong with that. But can I tell you there's an even greater wrong that we all instinctively know whenever we see it or whenever we are the guilty party. There's something wrong when a Christian makes a profession of faith on Sunday but doesn't live it out Monday through Saturday. That the world has seen too many Christians who profess their beliefs about God but those beliefs have not impacted their behavior. And that's whenever people start turning their back on religion. Religion gets a bad rap. Because religion goes wrong when it's empty ritual. Religion goes wrong when it's just about singing songs and offering prayers and attending Bible studies and worship services. But then nothing happens on the inside of the person as a result of having gone through those activities. Religion goes wrong when it's merely ritual. And what people call that, whenever they see someone who doesn't practice what they preach, whenever they see someone whose beliefs don't impact their behavior, they call that person a hypocrite. Now that word hypocrite comes from ancient Greek culture, where in plays, one person, one actor would portray different characters in the same play. And in order to shift characters, they would wear different masks. A mask for each character. And the word hypocrite means one behind a mask. And so in our day, people say, you're a hypocrite if you're hiding behind religion and church. But there's no difference in your life. And we would agree with that. We know that is true. And we, by the way, listen, we've all been hypocrites at one point or the other. We have all known more than what we're willing to practice. We all profess beliefs that we don't always effectively put into our behavior. But what happens is when we become hypocrites, we become a stumbling block to people who need Jesus. 
Rather than being a stepping stone, helping people come to faith in Jesus, we become stumbling blocks. We become stumbling stones. People will sometimes make the comment, if that person is what it means to be a Christian, then I don't want any part of that. I remember many years ago speaking to a woman who said, Pastor Ricky, you need to understand something. The man you see, my husband that you see on Sundays, is not the same man I lived with during the week. That the man who likes to sing and who likes to pray and who's always nice to everyone else at church abuses me at home. He was a hypocrite. And she was this close to giving up on her faith. Thankfully, she didn't. Thankfully, she realized she had put her faith in the wrong man. But she realized there's one man, the man, the Lord Jesus, who will never let you down. But that man became a stumbling block to her. And by the way, any, this is not the sermon today, but any woman in an abusive relationship, get out. Christ doesn't want you in that. Get yourself in safety. Do not allow yourself to be verbally or physically abused. There was a man that moved in next door to me many years ago, and I wanted to be a good neighbor. I saw him working in his backyard, so I decided to go out and help him. So we did a little bit of work down there at the edge of the retention pond, and when we finished, we were just kind of standing around getting to know each other. Found out where he had moved here from Miami and found out he was married to a wife and had a daughter. And so he then asked the question, so Ricky, what do you do for a living? And I was able to say, well, I'm a pastor. I pastor Fort Caroline Baptist Church here in, Arl in East Arlington. And you could see the look on his face change. And he said, I, I don't want to be rude, but I just need you to know up front, I'm not interested in organized religion. And I said, man, you will love our church then. We are disorganized religion. <laughs> And he says, no, no, seriously, I'm not interested. I don't want to hear about it. I've been turned off by what I've seen in the name of Christianity and church. And I said, man, I get that. I really do. And you're never going to regret moving next door to me. I promise you, I won't harass you. So we became good friends. Our families became very close. And I would invite them to church for different occasions, vacation Bible school or Christmas or Easter. And they wouldn't come. But about, I don't know, three or four years later, I looked up on an Easter Sunday morning, and there they were, sitting in the back. And uh, mom and dad got saved and became a part of our church. And now they teach, and they volunteer, and they go on mission trips, and they serve on committees. And I said, boy, for people who weren't interested in organized religion, <laughs> you sure are active in our church. And he realized, he said, you know, I'd put my eyes on people rather than Jesus. Jesus has never let me down. And so I do what I do for him. And so we all know that instinctively. We know there's something wrong when our beliefs don't translate into behavior. Now, I'm not saying that any of us are ever going to be perfect this side of heaven. None of us are going to be perfect this side of heaven. We're all going to struggle. We're all going to mess up. Contrary to what my wife says, I'm not a perfect husband. But I'm committed to her. And I'm not a perfect father, but I'm committed to my family. And I'm not a perfect pastor, but I'm committed to this church and to the Lord. And I think people understand that. They don't expect perfection, but they do expect commitment. And so I'm not saying today that if you've ever messed up, if you've ever fallen short, if you've ever sinned, if you've ever had the, the problem that your belief didn't turn into behavior then you must not be a true Christian. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is we need to learn how to be committed and have the desire that who we say we believe in 
Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior actually impacts our lives 365 days a year that is more than just a Sunday morning faith. Jesus did not die on a cross for a Sunday morning faith. He wants to be a part of every moment of every day of our lives. And we want other people to see him through us. And so today as we think about um, religion, I'm talking to you today out of James chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 on what I'm calling true religion. And sometimes Christians will say, and I have even said, well, Christianity is not a religion, it is a relationship. And that is true as far as that statement goes. That Christianity is not a religion, it is a relationship. If what we mean by that is to get to heaven, to have your sins forgiven, to be right with God, you don't need religion. Religion won't save you. No matter how many prayers you pray, no matter how many Bible studies you attend, how many worship services you go to, religion can't save you. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. So typically when we make that statement, we're saying Christianity, being saved, being right with God, is a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. However, Christianity is a religion. We still have Bible studies and worship services and prayers and ordinances like baptism and communion. So there's an aspect in which Christianity is a religion. But here's what we believe. You cannot earn your salvation through religion, but you can express your salvation through religion. And as Christians, that's where we come down on the idea of religion. That you can't earn your salvation through religion, but you can express it through religion. You can reveal your relationship with God through religion by marrying your beliefs with your behavior. And so that's what even the half-brother of Jesus talked about, James. The half-brother of Jesus, James, wrote a letter that we still have a copy of in our New Testament. We call it the book of James, but it's actually a letter that he wrote. And he didn't write in chapter and verse. We added those later to find different things that he wrote. But in James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, he does not shy away from using the word religion or religious. So religion is not a bad thing necessarily. Here's, here's what James writes in James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James doesn't shy away from religion. He says it can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. And in the letter James writes, James is not writing about becoming a Christian. He's writing about behaving like a Christian. I love the book of James. The book of James is so practical. There, there are many books of the Bible, especially some in the Old Testament, that I have trouble understanding, trying to keep all the moving pieces together. I mean, even after years of seminary, there's still concepts and things that I just struggle with. I don't have that problem with the book of James. My problem with the book of James is not what I don't understand, it's what I do understand, and now I'm obligated to live it. James is very practical. 
he talks about some specific ways that your faith in Christ ought to impact how you live. And James says, true religion reveals your relationship with God. True religion, not empty religion, not empty ritual, not false religion, not just a show. But true religion reveals your relationship with God. Your relationship with God is invisible and it's individual. How will anyone ever know that you love God? How will anyone ever know that you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Well, one of the ways is by how you live. And true religion reveals your relationship with God. And James gives us three practical ways that true religion reveals our relationship with God. True religion impacts three things. Our conversation, our care for people in need, and our conduct as we live our daily lives. Let's look at these two verses again and see what he says. He says, first of all, if you have true religion, you will control your tongue. You will control your tongue. You'll see that in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious. So James is imagining asking an audience like this. I mean, does anyone here think you're religious? Oh, yes, I'm religious. I go to church and I give money and I pray and I sing and I take notes when the pastor preaches and I serve in the church. Wonderful. Nothing wrong with being religious. That's a good thing. But if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, then he's really deceiving his heart. And this person's religious or religion is worthless. James is saying, good, good. So I'm glad you're religious. But if you're not taming that tongue of yours, if you are not bridling your tongue, if your religion... If what you believe about God and Jesus has not impacted how you talk, then you're deceiving yourself. You're thinking that your religion is a good thing, but what good has it done you if it hasn't even impacted how you speak to other people or about other people? Later in the book of James, he'll talk about how wrong it is to, with that tongue to bless God on one hand and then curse other people on the other hand. Made in the image of God. He says, I'm wrong with this picture. And when he says bridle your tongue, he's talking about that metal bit that would go in the mouth of a horse that we would use to control the direction of that horse. And he's saying later in James chapter 3 that the tongue is a small member, a small part of our body, but it has a lot of power behind it. That you can build up or you can tear down with your words. We lie to our children when we teach them that ditty that says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's not true. Words hurt. Words wound. And James has said, all you religious people, if you're not bridling your tongue, you're deceiving yourself. Your religion is futile. It's empty. It's powerless. It's worthless because it hasn't helped you. And often when we fail to bridle the tongue, we give in to things that we know are not godly. We, we give in to gossip where we pass on little tidbits and innuendos and rumors about other people. One country preacher said the gossip's favorite hymn in the hymnal is I love to tell the story. And some people do, man. They just they hear something. They don't know if it's true or not, but because it makes another person look bad, they say, have you heard? 
Did you know? I read this. I saw that. Someone told me. Whenever we fail to bridle the tongue, we give in to lying rather than telling the truth. When we fail to bridle the tongue, we get into cursing other people. Listen, I grew up in a contractor's home. He, he served in the 82nd Airborne before that. I know curse words. I've heard them all. And so if, it's not, if I'm not careful, it's easy for that stuff to come back, especially in traffic. I'm just not going to lie to you, especially in traffic. And don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. You've probably been there as well. If we don't bridle our tongue, we can give in to slander, tearing down another person's character in order to make ourselves feel good or to win an argument. By the way, it's one of the things that I think is a huge danger in our society today. No longer do we just disagree with people who have different views. We must destroy them. We must slander them. We must bring them down. They must be viewed as the enemy so that we can win our argument. That is not healthy in any relationship and it is not healthy in any society. And I fear for our culture that in this day of social media that we're anything but social with each other anymore. So tame the tongue. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Only let words that are good for building up the other person with grace come out of your mouth. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So we have to be careful about our words. And Jesus himself told us the problem is not with the words. The problem is with the heart. Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Those are the things that defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. Jesus says it's not what you're eating or wearing that defiles you. It's what's inside of you. It's in your heart that defiles you. I'm old enough to remember going to my grandmother's house in South Georgia and going outside to the old well and lowering a bucket into that well and then raising that bucket and drinking fresh, clean water out of that well with a dried, carved-out gourd. I mean, I'm going way back now. Some of the best water you'll ever taste. And my granny would say, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. And Jesus says, what's in your heart comes out of your mouth. And so what we need to do as followers of Jesus is confess to him, Jesus, I need you. I need your help. I can't tame my tongue. I can't bridle my tongue on my own. I need you to be Lord even over my conversations, even over how I talk to my spouse, talk to coworkers, talk to family, talk to friends, even the way I treat other people. I'm going to need you to help me because I don't want my religion to be worthless. True religion helps you control your tongue. Secondly, true religion helps you to care for the needy. 
care for the needy. That's what he is referring to in the first part of verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God. He's using synonyms to describe a spotless, unhypocritical religion. Pure and undefiled. So religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. None were more vulnerable in the first century in James's culture than widows and orphans. Widows bereft of their spouse, orphans bereft of their family. And unlike our day, there weren't many governmental social programs to help people in desperate need like that. So these vulnerable people were left to fend for themselves. And often they became destitute, homeless, beggars. Often they were preyed on by other people who would sell them into slavery. It was a terrible thing. But James, the brother of Jesus, says, after you finish singing your songs and after you've gone to your Bible study and after you've raised your hands in worship and after you've done all those religious things which are great, true religion is going to motivate you whenever you see a need. If you have the ability, you're going to seek to meet that need. And two prime examples, orphans and widows. These weren't the only people in need in James's day, but he's using them as an illustration of Christian compassion. They can't pay you back, widows or orphans. And that gives you an opportunity to show true Christian service that is selfless and sacrificial. It's not quid pro quo, which is a terrible term to use right now in our culture, but, but it's not you do for me and I'll do for you. No, you're just going to help people because that's what Jesus wants you to do and you want to go and do it. And your religion motivates you to respond to that need. That's why, dear friend, as a church, that we are not only helping with toys for children at Baptist Children's Home, we also, every month and a few times a year, support our kids in Bercy, Haiti at the Cabaret Orphanage that our Association of Churches helped found. And that several of our church members are on the board of directors. It's because of what James says. We take this seriously. That we need to be known as Christians, known as a church that cares for the needy. By the way, when he says visits widows and orphans, he's not just talking about just dropping in once and say, hey, I visited one and I remember doing that last year. The word in the Greek is actually translated often in your New Testament as bishop. I don't know if you know this, but there are three biblical terms that describe my office as an ordained minister. Uh, the, the most common and well-known term for what I do in the calling on my life is pastor. And so it means a shepherd of sheep. And Jesus is the chief shepherd of his flock. I'm just an under-shepherd working for Jesus. And it's my job as your pastor to feed you spiritually, to guide you, to protect you from error or from heresy and from the attacks of the outside. That's one word, pastor. Another word used for my office is the word elder. And the other ordained men of our church are elders. That doesn't speak so much of our age as it should speak to our wisdom. That God expects me and our staff to lead our church with wisdom. That we need to be wise in how we guide you and the decisions we make as a congregation. And then there's a third word that's translated 
overseer. In some of the older translations, it's translated bishop. That's the word James uses. To be the overseer of our church, for example, it's my job to oversee the whole church and the organization and the administration and the staff and the ministries to make sure that we do things equitably and ethically. Someone has to oversee the organization. And that word bishop is often applied to pastors. So from this day forward, if you don't mind, I'd really appreciate you calling me Bishop Ricky. That would be awesome. I don't think so. I just don't look like a bishop, do I? I love the fact, though, that that same word James takes and uses to describe the care that religious people are to give to widows and to orphans. You don't just drop in every once in a while. You personally take responsibility to oversee the care of this needy person. Or you oversee the church caring because we can do more together than we could, can do individually. And I want you to hear your pastor's heart. And if you've known me for any length of time, I don't need to say this, and I'm not saying this uh, to, to make myself look good, but I am a pastor at heart. And I love what I do. I don't just love preaching. I love preaching. But I love you. And I, I don't begrudge making hospital visits and going to nursing homes and doing counseling and answering phone calls and text. I don't begrudge doing weddings and doing funerals. There are pastors in churches in this city. They don't do that. They don't do it. They're too big for it. They don't, they don't have time for it. That's beneath them. They got other people to do it. That's not who I am. I'm going to do for one what I wish I could do for everyone. So sometimes people say, why didn't Ricky go see so-and-so? Why didn't Ricky go make this visit? Why didn't Ricky come to this function? It's because Ricky is not omnipresent. And according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, my job as the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. My job is to equip you to do your job. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, says... How many of you consider yourself religious? This is not just the preacher's job. It's every religious person's job. Every follower of Jesus' job to take personal responsibility for ministering to other people. I need your help. And I'm not going to ever be able to meet all the needs in our church. And let's just say even if I could, I would be robbing you of the blessings of revealing your relationship with God to other people in this practical, Christ-honoring way. So don't come to this church and say, I'm here to be served. Now, if you come to this church, we're going to challenge you. Love one another. Serve one another. Care for one another. Visit one another. Pray for one another. Show hospitality towards one another. And on and on. Because all of those one another's are in the Bible. In the New Testament. That is how church is supposed to function. Amen? The preacher can't do it all. And sometimes when people call me mad about not coming to see them, little do they know it's because I was seeing someone else. Well, that doesn't sound right either. It's because I was <laughs> ministering. Remember what I said about gossip? Slander. Don't leave here. Hey, Ricky, admit it. He didn't come to see me because he was seeing someone else. <laughs> because I was visiting someone else, ministering, helping. Does that make sense? 
I mean, just recently, someone was mad at me that I didn't come see them at the hospital before their surgery. Number one, it was outpatient surgery, and, and I'm not knocking that. It, when, there's no minor surgery when they're cutting on you. It's all major, so I get that. But I had sent another staff member. There were eight people from that person's life group with them and stayed the whole time. Is that not awesome? And this person later is mad at me that I didn't show up until later. And I said, man, I'm so sorry. I just couldn't be there. But what they didn't know, and, and there's a lot that you don't know. What they didn't know is I was on the phone with a man who was absolutely broken and I thought suicidal. I'm not going to tell him, I'm sorry, i got to hang up with you. I need to go make a hospital visit and join nine other people to show love to someone. But you, i got to leave you in this pit of despair. No, I didn't. I stayed on the phone with him for over an hour. We wept together. We prayed together. We later visited each other because I needed to make sure he was okay and he wasn't going to do something to himself. And I refuse to feel guilty that I can't meet everyone's expectations. And the brother of Jesus says, I don't have to. We're in this together. So true religion controls the tongue, cares for the needy, and commits to staying clean. Commits to staying clean. Because remember, he said, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and... To keep oneself unstained from the world. When James talks about the world, he's not about people necessarily because God loves the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. God loves everybody in the world. But there is a system in this world whose morals and values are often at war with God. And James says sometimes we can compromise our morals and our ethics to the point where there's no difference between us and the world. And we become stained by the world. When we start giving in to drunkenness and pornography, and when we give in to abuse and harassment, when we give in to ungodly lifestyles, we give the world ammunition to say, look at that person. And James says, no, you've got to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Do you remember many years ago, there was a, and they may still have it, this product called Tide to Go from Tide Laundry Detergent. It was like a pen that you could use uh, to get rid of uh, stain on your clothing. It's so funny, I had this sermon prepared, and this morning I was putting the shirt on, and I saw one little, little stain, an orange stain on the collar of my shirt. Like, no! I'm OCD about that kind of stuff. I, I want my clothes to be proper. I just can't stand a spot or a stain. And especially if I'm wearing a white shirt, it's got to be perfectly crisp and clean. And so that bugged me. I, thought, I don't have time this morning to iron a shirt. And so now the rest of you will be looking after the service, won't you, for that little spot somewhere on the collar of my shirt. But do you remember that pen? This is one of the commercials that they had for Tide to go. So tell me about yourself. Well, you know, an organized person, somebody who does not need details I'm actually very, very good with groups. I've surprised all my goals, my my prior job, and your competitor. My personality and have surpassed their own goals. Oh. 
Get famous at mytalkingstain.com. My talking stain. Silence the stain. Their point is, no matter what you're saying, people aren't listening to you because they're looking at that stain. It's just, it's just captured their attention. And I think the same is true when we start allowing our lives to be stained by the sin of the world. That even though we're trying to still be a good witness to other people who need Jesus, they can't hear what we're saying about Jesus because of the stain of sin in our lives. And James says, you've got to know true religion will help you keep yourself clean, unstained from the world. You've got to be careful. In fact, there was another commercial. Because we're a military town, I thought I'd show you the second commercial from Tide to Go. Remember this one? Gentlemen, we're going back to training. A stain, Vaughn? A ketchup stain? How dare you disrespect me, your country, and your mama? I guess the guy just wants to bring his lunch with him. Do you have something to say about the stain, Vaughn? Sir, what stain, sir? Vaughn, that... Oh, what they do send me a dag on Houdini? Tied to go. <laughs> James is not expecting sinless perfection this out of heaven. As the half-brother of Jesus, he knew full well that Jesus was perfect and none of us are. But what James is saying is that we're committed as much as we can be to living a pure and holy life. That we take personal responsibility for our own attitudes and our actions. And that when we see ourselves being influenced by the world more than by God, we stop and we say, wait a minute, no, I don't want to be stained by the world, I want to dedicate my conversation to God, I want to dedicate my care for other people to God, and I want to dedicate my conduct to God so that I'm bringing glory to Him and I'm bringing honor to Him. And when we do mess up, because we will, I'm not giving you an excuse, I'm not giving myself an excuse, but even when we do mess up, aren't you grateful that we don't need tied to go? We've got the blood of Jesus. We sometimes sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. Give him a hand for that. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe you see some sin in your past with your conversations. Maybe it was this morning on the way to church. Maybe you look in the past and see some sin in the fact that you've not been as caring for other people when you had opportunities. Or maybe you look back on your life and you say, I've allowed this world to shape my politics. I've allowed this world to shape my, my view of people of a different skin color. I've allowed the world to influence my, my television or my internet uh, activity. And, and there's a lot of stuff I've allowed into my life that's not pure. It's not honoring to Christ. It's not helpful for the cause of Christ. The good news is if we confess it, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You may not be perfect, but you can be committed to saying, God, I know if I have true religion, it will reveal my relationship with you. And I want others to see you in me and to see you through me. That's why we're doing this Be Rich campaign. It's we want people to see Jesus. We want them to look beyond us and to say, why do those people do that? Why do they love like that? Why do they treat each other like that? Why are they so good to us, even if we don't believe like they believe? We want them to see God through us so we can tell them about Jesus. And so here's a question. What does your religion reveal about you? 
Does your religion reveal it's just a show? It's just a Sunday morning activity? It is not real because it doesn't affect your behavior, doesn't change how you speak to people, doesn't change how you care for people in need, doesn't motivate you to keep yourself clean. You just do your Sunday morning thing, check it off, and then you live the rest of your life your way. Or will your religion help you reveal your relationship with God? That I'm not perfect, I'm a sinner saved by grace, I mess up every day, but I'm committed to Jesus because he's committed to me, and I want him to have his will and his way in every area of my life. And when I mess up, I want to tell him, and I want to do better today than I did yesterday. I want to lead us in a word of prayer. And in this prayer, I'm going to ask you if you want to rededicate your life to Christ as a follower of Jesus. We can't redo yesterday, but we can recommit ourselves today. And if you've never received Christ, I want you to put your faith in him today. Not through religion, trying to do better. I want you to put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior who died for you on the cross and who rose from the dead and who can forgive you and give you eternal life. So why don't we all pray together, and then I'm going to let you go. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the practical truths that we've learned from James the Apostle. And we thank you that we need to hear this, that true religion reveals your relationship with God. And that's what we want, God. We want you to be revealed in us and through us. We want to be more like you, and we want to bring honor to you. Father, we want you to be pleased. We thank you for your grace that covers our sin. We thank you for your patience, your mercy. And we thank you for your forgiveness. We trust you not only initially for salvation, we trust you continually and daily for sanctification to become the people you would have us to be. So God, in the stillness of this moment, I pray that every follower of Jesus in this room would rededicate himself or herself to you. That we would rededicate ourselves to being men and women who are connecting our beliefs with our behavior. That we're practicing what we preach. As imperfectly as we will, we're committed to living for you. Outside the walls of this church. Outside of a Sunday morning. Father, we pray that even through the efforts of this church, that others will come to faith in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. Now, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, maybe today you, for the first time in your life, need to receive Christ into your life as Lord and Savior. Could be a husband here today that needs Jesus, or a wife, a mom, or a dad. Could be a single adult. Maybe it's one of our senior adults. Could be one of these young people here. If you need Jesus, talk to him right now in your heart. You could say something like this, Dear God, I admit to you I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me in spite of my sin and that you've proven your love for me by sending Jesus, your son, into the world where he lived a perfect life and I've lived an imperfect life. And he offered his perfect life as a sacrifice for my sin. He took my punishment so he could give me his forgiveness. And so today I confess my sin and Jesus, I confess I'm putting my trust in you. Not in religion, not in baptism, not in church membership. I'm putting my trust in you as my Lord and my Savior to forgive me of my sin, to give me the gift of eternal life. Jesus, you promised in John 3.16 that whoever believes in you will not perish in their sin, 
They will not be separated from God because of sin. But instead, whoever believes in you will have the gift of eternal life. Today, Jesus, I receive that gift by faith. Help me now to learn more about you and to live for you. In Jesus' name we all pray. And everyone said, amen.